What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to all the twos, almost all the twos. We're not going to get to celebrate all the twos, but it's 2022, everyone. Welcome to the new year. If you heard our new year episode last week, you're probably well and truly into the flow of the new year and we hope you're having a great great time and we have a, a really lovely episode for you today lots and lots of fun stuff to talk about if you listen to our christmas episode um a couple of weeks ago we're going to be talking about some of the books we got for christmas um and talking a little about and we want to know a bit more about what you got for christmas as well but before we dive in we just want to say thank you to all our patrons our wonderful patrons for supporting this podcast and thank if you you're feeling guilty about having never been a patron of this podcast now is the time to remove your guilt it's very simple you just go <laughs> unburden to, yourselves you just unburden yourself for all those people who've been listening to us tell us they've been listening for five years and have never supported this podcast to so the patronage we would love to invite you into our wonderful group of patrons so do pop along to best experiment.com forward slash support and again thank you to everyone as part of the academy that makes this podcast possible as well mr stay hello sir uh, an extended happy new year for you i know we were already happy new year last week but uh how are that you was doing a fake, sir? that was a fake that happy was new year because we recorded it in the middle of December. <laughs> it's an entirely different thing when you step into 2022 which i'm still getting my head around um mm. yeah very good uh hit the ground running uh, i sort of I took Christmas and Boxing Day off, but I was writing pretty much every day because uh, I have to. I've got a book to deliver next week, and I'm working on rewrites of a script, so I, and I was editing a client's book, so I can't really slow down. This is um, the life, but yeah, right? This is the uh, life I of did, a working writer. Yeah, I'm not going to complain, mate, because it's it's. I love doing it all. It's all good fun. So, you know, I'd, I'd write for maybe half an hour in the morning and then stock up on chocolate and all the other good Christmassy stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's been a lovely Christmas. And yourself, sir? Yeah, I had a great time. We were just saying before we went on, went on air, just the thing that always catches me out is how quickly that kind of passage of time that happens just before Christmas and just after Christmas, that that lovely week when a lot of people, um, and I say this, you know, with thoughts out there for everyone who had to work, you know, full on over Christmas, all the all the emergency services and people and the people who have you know looking after say aging parents or whoever it might be or partners but there's a there's a beautiful time i find between christmas and new year where it i feel that the world the western world slows down and there's this kind of place it's kind of like more easy energy that happens and and you can do things like do a puzzle and things like that because mm. there's not this kind of sense of like the world is kind of rushing past you and you're not keeping up with it. I love yeah. that. Is that what retirement is like, I'm wondering? <laughs> is that what retirement must feel like? I don't know. Who knows? Something to ponder. But um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting one. But uh, we were going to talk a little bit about books, weren't we? And books, because we talked about books that we got in our childhood. But I, I did see quite a lot of posts on your <laughs> social media over Christmas, Mark, about books that you got for Christmas. Well, for, for a moment, I thought Santa had swapped our stockings, Mr. D. I thought these two books have got Mr. D written all over them. The, the first one I got, which is absolutely gorgeous, it's called You've Got Red on You, and it's the story uh, How Shaun of the Dead Was Brought to Life by Clark Collis, who's a, a very good um, film writer. First of all, look at it. It's gorgeous. Look it at looks it. Red, amazing. End papers, lovely chunky hardback. Wow. But it's not just about Shaun of the Dead. It goes into the whole thing with Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Jessica, Jessica Hines, how they create, work together on space, how they all met each other, oh. um, and then where Shaun of the Dead came from, the whole shooting thing, uh, the whole shoot, the post-production, the festival they did afterwards and then it sort of dips into Hot Fuzz and all the, these other movies mm. as well so you 
dive into this because I know that you're a big Simon Pe- I know you're a big fan of space. Dive into that. That is an absolute belter. Well, I'm a big really, Simon really Pegg fan as well, and, and and the stuff, all that, the trilogy. What was it? The Cornetto. I think Cornetto they trilogy. The Cornetto trilogy. Yeah. Well, yeah. They talk about the fact that. Um, because they had a Cornetto in the first one, that wasn't planned. But at the premiere, Cornetto gave them all free Cornettos. <laughs> and they're sitting there eating them going, we should have Cornettos in the next one. And that's that as simple as that. That's how it all came about. Um, and the the other one I, I just finished last night, and this was given to me by a um, film director I know called Ollie Blackburn, who's working on a, a book, actually, an extraordinary book that he's, he's going out to agents with soon. But he's a great uh, film director. And um, he gave me this. It's called The Hit Makers. And it's How to Succeed in an Age of Distraction by Derek Thompson. And it's just talking about what makes a hit. And it talks about music, talks about film, talks about novels. There's a whole chapter in there on Fifty Shades of Grey, which is absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. There's a lot of that joining the dots after the fact, which is, yes. you know, is, is a bit, you know. Um, but uh, it just basically, in short, people like the same but different. So yeah. they're going too different. Uh, you've got to look for that Goldilocks zone, you know, mm. uh, and timing is everything, perseverance, mm. basically everything we've talked about for the last five years on the podcast. <laughs> the entire podcast. Uh, but, yeah, but I love it's, it. It's an interesting book. I so, do yeah. love books like that. I Do you know, I love books that they retrospectively look back almost like historically, don't they, and see what happened and then try to kind of look at all of and like you say, join the dots. Because once you understand how that model works, which is what we've been really talking about in the bestseller experiment, I kind of intrinsically, we, we kind of have like delved so deep now, we kind of know what some of those dots are and how they join. But I, I think it's such a valuable thing to kind of look back and see what happened, look back. I'm doing it currently, um, a book that's talking about like, um, you know, the technology and COVID and, and all these different things. And again, looking back over the last 20, 30 years and then jumping back 200 years, it's incredible what you can what you can draw in terms of parallels of human behavior and all the things that are constant within that and the things that don't, don't change, such as like the way that we react to things as people. So yeah, yeah I'll have to delve into that. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like anything... It's not going to guarantee you're not going to read that and suddenly you're going to write a bestseller. But I think the more you listen to this kind of advice on our podcast, uh, the more likely you are to hit pay dirt. Because I I think once you start thinking, what is it that people like? What is it that people are looking for? What can I offer them that, you know, the, the, the whole thing of writing to market, it's, it's not writing to market. It's writing with a voice. It's right. But, you know, thinking about who's reading your book, it's complicated stuff, but it it's is absolutely complicated. fascinating. The thing I love about it is that, like we've always said, there's no formula to it, but the more that you, no. the more that you delve into it, the more you get like a macro level understanding, yeah. which affects the micro, yes. affects when you sit down to write each day without sometimes exactly. even realizing it, it's kind of seeped into your mentality. And I mean, I mean, I'll say this out loud, you know, you're proof of that, Mark, because you know, the things that you're currently doing and, and the hit rate you're getting now is success rate with the books and, and the films. Don't, and don't jinx it. Well, no, I, I don't, no, you don't have to jinx it. Seriously. Like you've put in five years of studying this with, with me. Like we've literally, yeah, yeah. we've gone deep. And I know a lot of people have gone with us on this and they've done as much studying as we have, but I think there's a correlation between that and, and the likelihood of gaining something which is popularised in in our world today. No question whatsoever. This podcast has improved my writing so, so much. You know, uh, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. And just the privilege of speaking to writers every week and being just that part of that conversation and sharing it with everyone and talking to people on the academy and yourself, it's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's been commented on by uh, collaborators of mine, you know. Uh, really? That, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Very interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go, yeah. folks. There's, there's total proof. So you, you're listening to us now. You're in the right place. You're in the right place. And what could this mean for your 2022 if you come with us each week on this journey of, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, Mark? The only constant in life is yeah. there is no, there is nothing permanent. We don't know what we're going to experience this year. Mm. We don't know what amazing things we're going to discover, what events are going to happen in our lives and the lives of people that listen to a podcast, the, the readers and the writers out there. It's all to play for folks. But if you, if you want to be in, if you want to be in it, 
you know, then then tune in each week and see what crazy things we're talking about and what we're up to. Um, and talking of, um, you know, things that are never, never, um, that are always changing. This week, we have a returning guest. Mm. Yes, uh, Simon Beckett, who uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. He first uh, spoke to us in episode 190, uh, which is called One Moment That Changed Everything and set him off on his career. But he's back, back, back. Simon Beckett is back. He's a number one international bestselling author of the David Hunter series. Books have been translated into nearly 30 languages. He's a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller. Sold over 10 million copies wide well. Won all kinds of awards. He's a former freelance journalist as well. But in addition to the David Hunter series, he's done various standalones. But he's back with a new series, which is uh, The Lost, which uh, features a new character called Jonah Colley. And we discuss the challenges of starting over with a new series character opening with a really shocking scene and why his first drafts are generally disasters. Marvellous stuff. Let's delve deep with Mark chatting with Simon Beckett. Simon Beckett, welcome back to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks, how are you? Uh, very good. Thank you for asking. And uh, we're here. We've, you're returning. I mean, last time we spoke, we were talking about body farms and all kinds of wonderful grisly stuff. Uh, but you've got a brand new book and a brand new series, The Lost, which is a change from your regular David Hunter series featuring a new character, uh, and Collie, what can you tell us about uh, this new series and the new book? Um, it's a little different um, to uh, the David Hunter series. Joanne Collie's a, a different character to Hunter um, because he's a Metropolitan Police Firearms Officer um, and he's contacted one evening out of the blue by somebody he's not heard from for a number of years, wants for his help and wants to ask him to go out and meet him at uh, a place called Slaughter Key. Which is a, a, a warehouse in a, in a, in a run, an abandoned warehouse in a rundown quayside um, in London. Joe uh, has obviously got reservations about this, um, uh, but he agrees to go because the person who's called sounds sounds pretty desperate, and they've obviously got quite a lot of history. Um, and when he goes there, he finds quite a horrific scene. Um, there's been uh, people have been killed, basically, and without going into too many details, Joe is attacked and badly injured himself. Uh, and um, subsequently, as he's recovering from this, it obviously has a quite a traumatic effect on him. He doesn't really know what's been going on in the warehouse. He's no idea what's, what, what, you know, what was happening there. But increasingly, he begins to think it might have something to do with his, his own past, because 10 years before, uh, his young son disappeared. And uh, this is something John has always blamed himself about. And uh, the more he starts looking into what happened at the warehouse, the more he starts thinking that in some way it might be connected with the disappearance of his son 10 years ago, which obviously then makes him very, very driven to, to get to the truth of what's actually going on. Fantastic stuff. And it's had a great reception, terrific reviews so far, but there are lots of changes and challenges with this new book. You're changing your lead character, Jonah Colley. Forgive me, I called him Johan Colley. That's my typo in my notes here. <laughs> and you've got a new publisher, Trapeze. You've got a new editor, Sam Eads, who's been a guest on the podcast a few times. Say hello to Sam. Um, so all change. I mean, part of the thing with, with a series is a lot of the world building is done. You kind of know the precinct and the, the character. This was kind of ground one for you. So how difficult was that? It brings its own challenges, but to be honest, so does writing the next book in the series. Uh, because although um, you've got that familiarity, I think the danger is with, with, with the series, certainly, you know, from my perspective, um, you don't want things to get stale. Um, and I certainly wouldn't want David Hunter to, to become stale, either for me or for the readers. So after the, the sixth book, the, the sixth Hunter, um, which is the centre death, I felt I'd, I'd tied up quite a, a few loose ends that had been carried over from you know from previous novels um, and it seemed a, um, a good good point to actually try to do something different because um, David Hunter I, I enjoy writing the character and you know I will be continuing to write the character as well uh, but he's a, he's a scientist he's a forensic anthropologist he's a very insular character which means that there are certain situations that he wouldn't do well in and that you know certain plots if you like that he wouldn't that I can't really explore through, through the character of David Hunter um, and he felt like it was time to just try doing something a little bit different. Jonah Colley, obviously, um, is, a, is a police officer, his firearms, he's used to high pressure 
situation. He's more physically competent, I suppose, but he's, he's still flawed. He's still vulnerable. He's, he's not. Um, he's not a Superman, a Superman or um, an action hero by any means. Um, so I found him an interesting character to write, but he was the sort of character who was who was also going to be different to Hunter. So there, yeah, there are, there are advantages and disadvantages. So you, you've you've got to start from scratch, um, decide what sort of character he is, decide on the backstory, who's surrounding him. But that's to some extent that's the same in, in any book because with with the hunters, each one is takes place in a different location. So to a degree. I have to do that anyway because it's always going to be new characters and the one or two returning ones sometimes. But generally, it's um, new locations, new settings, new characters for Hunter. So in that respect, it wasn't such a departure. Um, I mean, obviously, it was you know was a bit, but uh, it wasn't such a culture shock to me. That's really interesting. You're talking about backstory there because I I sort of broke off from making my own notes about characters and the thing that I'm writing. And this is about a band. So I'm doing a, a kind of, you remember those Pete Frame that f- band family histories kind of thing, you know, and, and and just doodling down notes. How does backstory start for you? Do you do little bios or do you just think about them thematically or do you think of them as, uh, you know, uh, uh, give them somewhere to go? I mean, what, what's, what start, what, where does a character first come from for you? It varies, to be honest. Um, with with the character of David Hunter, uh, I spent a lot of time. Um, I got a rough idea for the, the story, but um, because I knew, it, you know, I'd, I'd been to the body farm um, and seen what American forensic anthropologists do, and I wanted a British one, so it was a case of okay, where, where does this character start from? With the lost, uh, the starting point for the book was uh, I've got the, the opening scene, the opening chapter in the head, which is where. Someone at this stage, and I didn't know who it was. I wanted it was a police officer, I knew that much, goes into an abandoned warehouse expecting one thing and finds something very different. Um, and I got, I knew it was going to be quite a strong scene, um, quite potentially, you know, a, a shocking one. Um, and then for me, it was a case of, okay, well, what's going on there? Um, and it was a case of thinking what sort of character was going in there and then why. So I find it different, difficult. Well, I don't find it difficult to differentiate between plot and character because I, I, I can't really. I think for me, the, the plots and the characters are so intertwined that, you know, characters and plots, they, they, they develop along, you know, in parallel, in tandem to each other. Um, and I think it was certainly that way with Jonah because as this story began to take form in my mind, so did his, his personality and his character. Um, it, it does tend to be different. I don't, you know, I, I don't... Um, think of a plot and then show on a character into it. And equally, I don't think of a particular character and then think, okay, well, what, what can they do? It, it has to be, it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, a more of a natural development for, for, you know, to work on them both together. So one informs the other. So is it is it kind of that situation where, because what I love in a character is often they're the worst person to deal with this situation. You know, they might be a professional, you know, a doctor or a cop or, or whatever, but there'll be something inherent in them that makes it really, really difficult for them to cope with a, a particular challenge or a situation. The flaws of the character, how aware of you uh, of those? Yeah, very aware because I think um, they're what makes the character interesting. Um, you know, if if, the, if you know if you read about our character, who always got everything right uh, and could always, you know, come back with the right put down handle every situation well then you know where's where's the tension and the you know the drama and that um and plus it will be unrealistic because you know we've all we're all flawed characters um so it's a case of yeah you don't want to make them too wounded or um or whatever but they've, they've got to have something going on in their lives because everybody does um and it's a case of you know okay for this particular character what's what's going on with them and what's happening with them uh, and for Joe, obviously, a big thing is what happened um, to his to his son. That's something he's struggled to deal with, um, and in a different way to say David Hunter was you know, who had also got past uh, you know a tragedy in his own life. Um, but they they dealing they deal with it in different ways. And I think for Joe, working his way through this, when he suddenly finds himself in this situation, it changes everything because all the underpinnings he's trying to rebuild his life on are suddenly. You, you realise it's that they're on, on quicksand. Um, and 
for a writer, that gives me somewhere to go and things to play with and develop. And hopefully for readers, it gives a, an, you know, additional interest. Excellent stuff. Was there a point where it all clicks into place for you uh, when you're developing a story? Do you, do you feel like... Uh, you get a sort of halfway through and it starts to take shape or do you end up with a kind of a messy first draft? How does that work for you? Uh, my first drafts are generally disasters, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I generally, and it's funny because I've been talking to one or two people and I think it's the same thing. It tends to be about the 25, 30,000 word mark for me where you hit the stumbling block. And there's been times in the past where I've not actually been able to get past that and I've, I've had to start from scratch. Um I think I got, I got got past it with this one, but it's a case of uh, there are there are a series of small eureka moments because as you're going on, it's just like, okay, what's happening now? This this isn't working, and then you get past that and you get yes, great, and that carries you on for a while. The momentum from that keeps you going until the next one, and then there's the next one and the next one, and it's just part of the the process. I mean, it used to bother me because I used to want everything to go smoothly. Which is pretty, yeah, exactly, uh, pretty unrealistic. Um, so when it didn't, it would uh, sort of like knock me back a little bit. Now I know it's not going to. And when, it, when I do come across all these stumbling blocks, you just think, yeah, okay, you know, let's let's work out what to do to get around it. Um, so there's no there's no hard and fast routine for me. I wish there was. Um, it's a case of the first draft is is rough, very very rough, and often I don't. It's not until I get to the end. Um, that I know, you know, things do fall in place, but that means then that I've got to go back and change things in the in the you know preceding chapters, um, you know, to for, for the start and finish the telling because it develops so much as I'm going along. And by the time I get to the end of the first draft, you know, the first few chapters aren't necessarily going to uh, going to fit. Abandoning a book, even if I say only twenty five thirty thousand words in, which is a, a lot of hard graft. Abandoning book is quite a big decision. How many times have you had to do that? Quite a few, uh, to be honest. Um, I mean, with with one book, um, it got to the, you know, as yeah, it was. I got to the end of it basically, and then it, it was it wasn't working, and I knew it wasn't working, and uh, I basically bitched in the entire thing and started from scratch. That was a really uncomfortable position to be in. That was you know, particularly when you got deadlines. Uh, that that wasn't that wasn't good, um, but it's, it's it's happened it's happened quite a few times, um, and I think uh, so on, on every book there's always sections I get rid of. There's always part of it you think, yeah, that's not working. That needs to go. So I'm quite a wasteful writer. Um, I know some writers can just sort of get to the end of the first draft and then it's it's almost like you know, not quite a tidy up. But for me, it's like. The first, the first draft is almost like the skeleton. Um, no, no pun with, you know, intended. It's the skeleton. <laughs> what's going on? And, and then it's a case of breathing a sigh of relief. And okay, now I can actually start getting things, fleshing it out properly, and you know, making sure all the, uh, all the joints work. And of course, this, you know, these being thrillers, you've also got the added element of a mystery at the centre of this, or some kind of, you know, revelation or, or detective work. Uh, how much of that are you outlining ahead or are you just, you know, discovering that as you write? Again, it tends to be both. I outline as much as I can, um, knowing full well it's going to change and develop. There was, there was one of one of the books, one of the hunters, and I was really confident because I planned it out really thoroughly and I thought everything was going to be, you know, you know, it was pretty much there. I'm just going to write it. Um, and then as soon as you start writing and things start going up, you think, yeah, that, that it's fine having a plan on paper, but when you actually come to writing the story, it doesn't necessarily work out like that. So um, I like to have an idea where the end point of the book is. Um, for a series, I will often like to have, I mean, certainly with, the, you know, with this John Cover one, I've got an idea of which plot elements I want to carry through into future books. And so I'm sort of keeping an eye on those as well as I'm writing. Um, but then... Um, as to actually how things play out and pan out and fit together, that always changes as I'm going along. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of um, leeway and give and take and chopping and changing things as I'm, as I'm, as I'm writing. Mm -hmm. I'd like to take you back to 
where it all started, basically, because I, I was looking at your bio and it's it's interesting. You, you you've been uh, teaching, but you were also uh, you know installing cavity walls. Uh, were you always was stories always ticking over in your mind when you're doing these jobs? Were you finding time to write while you were doing those jobs as well? Not not for for a, for a while. I mean, I've always enjoyed writing, but um, it, it was in, I was in my late twenties before I decided. It, it became a strong enough urge for me to think I wanted to try and make a you know serious go of it. Um, there was a I did a, an English degree, and there was a creative writing element in that which I really enjoyed. But um, when I finished that, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And without that sort of structure of you know exercises being set, I didn't feel I got anything to write about. So for a number of years, um, I didn't I didn't write at all. And yeah, I did you know various. Um, uh, manual jobs and things like that, played in bands, and uh, and gradually the idea that I wanted to write got stronger. So I started, you know, doing things, you know, when I got home for that night and and a spare time. Um, but then I got the um, a mate so out of the blue one day and said, "Oh, there's, um, he was teaching in Spain, teaching English as a foreign language in Spain." He said, "Oh, there's a job going. You just have, you know, do you fancy, it? Do you fancy it?" And it was like this was in sort of uh, December. So it was either that or carrying on another winter working at the ladder. So I went over to Spain and I thought, well, this is going to be, you know, I've got a lot of free time. And that was um, quite a, a, a big turning point for me because it made me, it gave me the, the time and the freedom to think, all right, if I'm going to make a go of it, this is the place to start and the way to start, you know, when I have got this sort of opportunity. So, yeah, it would have been late 20s before I actually sat into the idea that, you know, this is what I wanted to do. And you, you spoke about that idea sort of ticking away in the background was that was that one of those ideas that just wouldn't go away that sort of compelled you to write no no particular idea no there was no there was no one story that I, I was wanted to tell um and I think that was part of the problem because I didn't know what sort of writer I wanted to be or what sort of stories I was wanting to tell I, I enjoyed writers like Ian Banks you know the Wasp Factor written that completely bowled me over but also you know from when I was like doing English course people like Hemingway and you know things like that which are so there are there all these different things. I didn't have anything concrete in mind. It was just I wanted to tell stories, and that was that was about it. I wanted to write stories, um, um, but it was it took me a while to you know to get one that I got the legs really to 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 you know to become a novel, and even that wasn't published anyway. So it was only you know the first one. Nothing happened with that. So it uh, you know these things take time. They certainly do. What um. What was your writing routine when you were working? How were you working around the day job? Again, it was would be um, sometimes it to be I'd come in at night. The first, the first, my first published novel actually, um, I had that that idea came to me, um, and I was sort of thinking about it while I was working. And I got like one night and I just got a pad and paper and started started writing it. Um, doesn't always happen to me like that. Um, so it was a case of just working around uh, when, when, when you can, because I started working as a freelance journalist when I came back from Spain as well. Um, and so that that was my, the bread and butter money. So the novels had to be working around that. So it was weekends, spare time, days off, um, you know, where, where I could fit it in, really. And then but gradually the... The emphasis changed, so the novels became more and more important. So I was wanting to spend more time on that and less on, you know, the other things. So there was a sort of winnowing out process, I suppose. Now, it's interesting. We've had a few journalists on the show who have gone on to become writers, and it's always fascinated me that that thing of doing two jobs. You know, you have your day job and you have your your novel writing. And if your day job is writing constantly, is there a did you ever have days when you get to the end of the day and think, oh, God, more typing? <laughs> Did it, were you able to separate the two? Yeah, because uh, I enjoyed them both. Um, and I think that, that is pretty key. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't trained as a journalist. I was a freelance. Um, um, I had no training at all. So it was quite exciting doing that and getting commissions and then going and doing all these different things, which was fantastic. Um, but then equally, it was, it was good then to have a bit of clear space to think, okay, this is time I've got now to work on what I'm wanting to do as well. So as far as I was concerned, the two, you know, dovetail very, very nicely. It's, uh, I didn't, you know, and uh, there, there was no real, um, I mean, obviously, if if you've got a, a deadline, you know, got a commission, you've got to get it done, then 
the, the, the books have to take a, a back seat. But uh, that aside, it's, um, you know, they didn't get in the way of each other. And journalism is is not a profession, you know, full of millionaires rolling around in cash. This is, um, you know, it's very kind of hand to mouth. As you say, you're getting commissions and sometimes they can take ages to pay. It's um, how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep yourself going in those sort of lean years when uh, there's not tons of money coming in? Uh, well, I mean, I think one motivation is that there's not tons of money coming in. So you've, got to, you've got to hustle for it, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is that is a big incentive because uh, you've got to pay the bills. And um, at the same time, I was doing that. A lot of my friends who got into stable jobs were doing really well. So they were sort of um, pull, pulling ahead, um, which, you know, and there were times you think, you know, am I doing the right thing here? But it was what I was wanting to do. And again, I come back to that. I was enjoying it. I used to get a real buzz when I get a commission. And then you get the nervousness about going, setting off somewhere to go and um, to interview somebody, to hoping that everything worked out, all the arrangements worked out, then hoping you could you make a decent piece. So, And it was a short-term thing. So that was quite a, a good antidote, if you like, to what happens when you write a novel, which is where you're in it for the long game. So um, for me, it was... Um, I didn't really need any more incentive other, other than that. You know, it was paying the bills on the one hand and, and yeah, and enjoying it. And when you're writing that first novel, were you telling friends and family about it? We say, I'm writing a novel, or was it something you kept to yourself? I kept it to myself. Friends and family, close friends and family knew. Um, but I played in bands and that, that was different. That was great because if you play in a band, you can give people demos, uh, you've got gigs. It's much more of a public thing, whereas if you're writing something, particularly when it can take, you know, a year or two or whatever, uh, and it's, there's nothing there to show people, everybody tends to think, I mean, I'm from a, a working-class background, and, you know, you think, well, it's, people are just going to think this is being unrealistic. So a lot of people didn't know I was writing. Um, I mean, it's quite funny, when, you know, I, I, I bump into somebody every now and again, and the first they knew that I was writing at all, really, they'd seen something or seen one of my books or something, it just, I did no idea. Um, so it, it was a big relief when, five, I mean, it took years, but when my first novel was accepted, and I could say to people, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've done this, I'm, I've been writing, I'm, I'm a writer now. Um, and it, it felt like, you know, that was, that was great, because I'd never really felt comfortable calling myself a writer when I wasn't published. Right. Yeah, there's a kind of stigma about that. Um, and what's coming next? Uh, are there going to be more Jonah Colley stories? Are there going to be more David Hunter stories? What's what's coming next from you, Simon? Um, well, yeah, yeah, yes to both. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to actually say which one I've got lined up immediately next because I'm, uh, I never do, basically. I'm always a bit... Um, right. And I don't know if it's not wanting to jinx it or whatever or just, uh, you know, but uh, until things are, you know, well underway, I don't like... Uh, I don't really like talking to them. But yeah, like, you know, Jonah Colley's certainly the first in the series and uh, I, I you know, certainly plan to, you know, got more David Hunters as well. So, uh, yeah, see what happens. Excellent stuff. And is there any more TV on the way where there's smoke was adapted into TV series? Is there any sign of any TV or film on the horizon? Uh, there is actually um, nothing I can actually talk about again oh. yet. But things are... <laughs> I'll head in the right direction, so hopefully before too much longer there'll be, there'll be some news, but there's nothing until it happens. You can't really say sure anyway, but um, fingers crossed. And, uh, yeah. Indeed. Well, Simon, thank you so much for speaking to us today and for coming back on the podcast and hope to speak to you again soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. It just goes to show you can sell 10 million copies of a book and still ditch an idea isn't that amazing that blows me away but yet we know it's yeah. true right we've heard it before and here's living yeah. proof again well i think for him as well it's part of his process if you've done it enough times you know you get 25 30 000 words into something that's part of the discovery that's part of finding out who your characters are in the situations and you get to that point you think okay I've funneled down this way, but actually, if I step back, I know who these people are. I know where to go now. So uh, I think we've had a, a few writers, you know, if you're doing this for the first time, that must be absolutely terrifying and mortifying. But if you've done it a few times, it's it's part of what you do. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's all part of the 
you know, rather than calling it pantsing, people sometimes call it discovery writing. I think that's that's. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. I think I think we've discovered a new badge of honor. What we know the the ultimate badge of honor is the first one star Amazon review. We know that, Um, (laughs) but the new ones, the one, the new kind of badge of honor that we need to pin to every writer listening right now that's finished a book and discovered. Uh, maybe even on their second or third book, maybe their first book was which was, was a really kind of like a, a flow right, you know, it just kind of happened. Or maybe the first book is something which was a real struggle, but they got to the end. But a badge of honor is by getting to the end, like you say, you discover that this is part of the process. You discover that it's very, very rare that someone writes from word one to word whatever, 80,000, and doesn't have a point where they get completely stuck a point where they're like, this is absolute crap. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I wasting my life doing this? And I think it's worth writing that first book just to get that badge of honor because the experience alone of knowing that, that knowing that you are potentially going to hit hit you know the, the rails and wonder what, what you're doing and where you're going to go. Question is, Mark, here's a big question. And I always ponder this. How many people listening to this podcast, listening to us right now, out of a hundred, say, are feeling that moment or are about to feel that moment or have got past that moment but not finished their book that haven't actually experienced. Do you think, do you think, I mean, because I, I do wonder if it's like 80% of people in the world that write books that have, have not yet realized that this is part of the process, how many people stop writing as a result of it? It's well, like I, I don't know. I mean, honestly, don't know how many, but it is um, is one of these things that the more you do it, the better you are at coping with it, and you recognise it for what it is. Ah, yeah. hello, my old friend. Old friend, exactly. And and yeah. then you're able to cope with it, and it just becomes, yeah, yeah. It just becomes, you know, Blofeld or whatever. It is. <laughs> <laughs> becomes your per- personal antagonist. Yeah, yeah. Bet Noir. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I love it. You so we need it. to we need to give this we need to we need to um, deterrorize this idea by giving mm. it some ridiculous notion. I mean, it could yeah. be your Blofeld. I like that idea because that's a fiction fictitious character. But that has yeah. to. We have to give it. We have to. We have to lighten the load for people here. What 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 could we create for people that is the badge of honor? The evil count procrastination. No, the uh, the oh, uh, let's have a well, think. We've um, talked about muddy middle before, haven't we? We've talked about the muddy middle that came up with the um, Grant Faulkner interview that we did, the NaNoWriMo, um originator. Yes, uh, muddy middle was kind of like an idea, but it's this idea of not so much hitting the muddy middle. It's the whole. It's the badge of honor you get by getting past it and then be- recognizing it as part okay. of the process. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should put it out to socials. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't think of it at the moment. My let's brain is let's, to let's put it out to socials. If you've if you've been there and you've done it and you recognise this isn't now your old friend, we, we want a name for this so that we can we can caricature it and then we can reference it forever and ever on this podcast. Doctor Doubt has come to visit. I've defeated Doctor Doubt, uh, the evil Doctor Doubt. I mean, some people call them vomit drafts, which are, to me, I love the concept of it, but the the actual visual I get of it is just horrible. <laughs> it's like, because it's literally spewing your words out onto paper. But I mean, that's a, that is an extreme case of what a lot of people feel. I mean, even Simon said, you know, the first draft, absolute, like shockingly terrible. It's so rare that yeah. we don't hear that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so if you've, if you've been there and you've done that and- and you've and you've given it a pet name. Let us know what it is, and we'll uh, we'll 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 historically like characterize it on the on the uh, podcast for you. The other thing that I found was really interesting um, about about Simon. I mean, he talked he referenced the thirty five thousand to twenty five thousand to thirty thousand word kind of range where this typically happens, where the hard you know it's like the the twenty fifth mile of the the marathon comes early in some ways when you're writing a book and you get hit there. What do you think is one of the key things to get past that? Um, I, I mean, you, I've never actually really got stuck at that point. So I can't really, at least not for a long time, not, not within living memory. Um, but then 
I think the thing is, if you've got an idea of an ending, because he took, well, I, I, I want to talk about openings in a minute. And he said this book was inspired by an opening scene and off he went. And for him, he's hitting that wall and then going back and saying, okay, I know where this is going now. Um, so maybe, you know, that's a th- the, the, the thing that Michael Conley does, which is to back up and then break through it. That's one way of doing it. For me, the big thing is if you've got a strong thematic idea, strong central dramatic argument, that always helps me break through any kind of block because I sit back and I go, okay, let's go back to theme. What is this story actually about? What's the challenge for this character? And once I start noodling ideas about that, it comes pretty quickly. Um, so I think if you've got a if you've got an ending in mind, and if you've got a strong central dramatic argument, and by that I mean a theme posed as a question. Uh, so it could be, you know, um, oh, well, actually, I've got one on my wall over there which says should you surrender to desire so that's a central dramatic argument of something i'm working on of course you know most people would say no no you don't surrender to to desire and then you see a biscuit and you think oh just one more biscuit so it's (laughs) it's it's one of these things where where there's there's potential for drama there um you know so if you put people in the situation and you should you show them so so if i'm stuck i'm thinking okay let's go back to theme I need to you know, seduce them with some sort of desire. I need to tempt them with something. That's great. Suddenly, I'm back on track. Mm. So that helps me a lot. That's interesting. And what you said about endings is so true as well. I mm. think the ending can be a magnet in some ways that can can draw you towards it. I think it'd be interesting. I'd love, oh, if, I was, if I was like a, a scientist and researched writing, I would, what I would do is an experiment to see how many people that get stuck in that muddy middle don't actually have an ending or a strong mm. enough ending. And is it the fact that they don't have that strong enough ending already thought through that they get stuck and then they get lost because there's nothing pulling them out of the forest and they know where the exit is and you can go, go around in circles. I've seen that happen so many times with a lot of writers where they do just end up turning in circles. Your protagonist and- is often on a journey from A to Z and you know the Z, the Z is the opposite of A. So if um, you know if there, if you know what that end point is, then you you'll be able to gauge how far along they are in that story of change. Mm. So that helps as well. That's why the ending helps so much, I think, because yeah. you're thinking, well, actually, they've got to be. If they're a hot mess at the beginning, they've got to have their life sorted out by the end. So how am I? How am I getting? How far along are they on that journey? What are the setbacks? What are the what are the things they're having to overcome? How mm. can I challenge them? What barrier can I put in their way to test them and make them stronger? You know, so that's why the ending, having some idea of the ending, is really important. Well, all I can say, folks, is to be continued. This this is actually the kind of stuff we do in the academy all the time. Totally. Isn't it? If you if you love this, if you love going deep on this kind of stuff, come and join us at the academy because we do coaching on this. Um, throughout the month and it's and it and there's always something new to learn about this so so do join us and just deepen your knowledge on this it makes such a difference such a difference um you talked about openings as well mark well again it, again i got there's a whole course of this on the academy but uh, i just found it fascinating that it was an opening scene that inspired him to write the rest of the book and opening scenes are wonderful they're such uh they're, they're so much fun to write because anything is possible Absolutely anything is possible. And it's after that you need to start making story decisions and doors start getting closed. But I do encourage people to have as much fun as they can with an opening scene. And there's so many opportunities there because, you you know, you're establishing things like the tone or the voice or a character or the world or the time. Figure out what's most important to your story and establish that in the opening. And uh, just, you know, keep just have just have really really good fun with it and it's 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 a thing that, that that will and i think this is why simon's books do so well because they have these wonderful dramatic openings with great you know turnarounds and reversals and surprises that people think great i'm on board because if mm. you if you can surprise and enthrall someone with your opening chapter they're going to think the rest of the book is like this. Now, of course, the trick is to keep the rest of the Try book and like keep that. Them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, but if, you can, <laughs> if you can do that, and I don't necessarily mean having you know massive explosions or people on the run or whatever, but just make your opening chapter as as much of a delight for the reader as possible. 
delight them, surprise them, entice them. Don't open with someone brushing the teeth and getting out of bed and turning off the alarm clock or anything like that, you know? One thing I've noticed is I've got less and less patience for long, drawn-out, boring chapter ones. I mean, it's just how I like to read. I'm not saying there isn't, you know, space for that. But I think a really big opening chapter has so many different benefits, not just to keep the reader, but you're pitching the book to agents and publishers. Like they're going to have the same response as the reader. Um, It's the bit that people will possibly read on Amazon because it's the first bit of the book. It's like all of these benefits to making it absolutely brilliant. And it also, I think, helps set some kind of level of accountability to say, look, if I can open with this, can I keep it going? And you set a standard for yourself to write Whereas if you write a really kind of slow, boring, and, it, and, it, and it first chapter that bores you, you can't expect, one, you're going to have a real struggle trying to up the, up the tempo. And secondly, how can you expect your readers to go along with the book? And so mm-hmm. I think a rewrite of the first chapter or just say, right, start and just, I mean, I, I, the first chapter I've written on this book I'm working on, it's kind mm-hmm. of like up there with the old, you know, double-decker bus going off a cliff in our book back to reality. It's that kind of level of drama, like slapping them in the face. Because it's like, well, that's what you need. That's what you've got to give them. And um, there's one thing I've learned from that podcast. It's about you've got to grab people's attention from the outset and and then hold it, obviously. But uh, brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Simon Beckett. If you, um, as, as Mark mentioned, his new book is out now. And Mm. if you, if you would like to, um, if you would like to get involved in the 200 words a day challenge, you know, we talk about the kind of consistency of writing. This is the beginning of the the new year. And we've had lots of people sign up for the 200 word challenge. Um, this is your time, you know, you can sign up obviously at any point during the year, but it really is good to sign up as soon as you can to try and bank as many words over the year. People take a lot of focus on that. So if you're looking at building habits over the next year, 200wordchallenge.com pop along and join thousands of people who are doing this and helping it helping themselves write their book and hopefully creating this habit of a lifetime all of our all of our social media this week is funny enough first week of january is all about people jumping on board with 200 words, hashtag 200 words a day i'm there all sorts of people are there um it's julian barr old friend of the podcast here he tweeted on december 31st he said in 2021 i managed a 365 day writing streak for a grand total of 390,000 words, basically. Uh, he says, I'm grateful to the best seller experiment for issuing the challenge to write 200 words a day. The habit of doing a little every day kept the momentum going, even on days when I didn't feel up to it. And that is exactly, exactly the point. And I loved, I, I love it. Julian got a congratulations from Mark Hood, the king of the writing streak. He's been knighted <laughs> by Mark Hood. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, so big congrats on that, Julian. At the other end of the scale, Andrew Chapman, who is on Twitter's at Andy Chap writer, he tweeted this on the 2nd January. He said, I've written every day so far this year. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> he says, I hopefully oh. this is the beginning of a year-long streak. I'm pretty sure it will be, Andy. Do keep us posted on that. That's um, amazing. But I want to say, I just want to say well done to Julian, Julian oh, cool. Barr, for joining the 365 Club, yeah. as it's as it's now known. There's not many people mm. that have done that, and it's quite, so I want to encourage Andy, look, it's it's early days yet, but you can you can do it as well. Absolutely. And uh, Jeevani Chirika, who uh, also writes as Rhoda Baxter and is on Twitter at Rhoda Baxter. She says, I'm doing this again this year. Weekdays only. Weekends are a bonus. This challenge is what broke the pandemic-induced writing slump in 2020. 200 words is a nice, manageable daily goal. I often write more than that, but with this, I know I'll write at least 1,000 words a week. So best of luck with that. Jeeve got everything crossed for you. It's going to be amazing. And uh, I'm doing it, you know, I'm there every day. I've actually, um, friend of the podcast, Sage, she's also done a spreadsheet where you can keep track of your words. Um, so uh, I, I can put a link in the show notes. To that That's on the Academy, really actually. Cool. You, can, that you can get that as it one is, of the resources yes, on the Academy, yes. which is great. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. quite... It's we're finding that the simplest way to get going for anyone who's struggling or anyone who's got aspirations to to get a book finished. I mean, if you look at the kind of figures you've just been talking about, I mean, Julian, I worked out 
pushed out an average of just over a thousand words a day, 1,068 words a day by doing the 200 words they challenge. He got five times his investment back. <laughs> you can't even get that with Bitcoin. Brilliant. And then, and then even if you're just, if you're just <laughs> doing, if you're just doing 200 words a day, that is a novel in a year. That is like 70 to 80,000 words a year, which is the average length of the novel, which is why the 200 word challenge exists. It is linked to that book in a year. So, you know, if you think you haven't got the time to be a writer, you may as well quit or do the 200 word challenge because that <laughs> is the thing. That's the thing that will get you through the year. So um, we'll see you on the other side, 200wordchallenge.com. And, um, and then we want to hear your stories and updates as to how it's changed your writing life because it's been quite phenomenal hasn't it mark re, re, i mean over the last year alone yeah, the amount of stories we've heard yeah great stuff amazing brilliant well, folks if you want to get in touch come and find us on social media uh facebook is bestseller experiment twitter and instagram is at bestseller xp or pop along to the website bestsellerexperiment.com there's a contact tab there you can drop us a line we answer all our emails and if you've enjoyed this episode pop along to your podcatcher of choice Give us a rating, preferably a nice rating, because uh, so, that helps us make us more visible. We can help more writers. We can all get voices out there that haven't been heard before. We get all those stories told. That's what we are all about. Brilliant stuff. And if you would like to try the Bestseller Academy with Mark and I, come and join us. Try it for 30 days. You can come along and try it for 30 days. Get a taster of it. See if it's for you. Join us for some live coaching this month on both life coaching for writers and craft coaching. Plus meet some incredible writers who are very, very like-minded. One of my favorite things about the Academy is all the amazing people that we've got in it. So come and be a part of this amazing community. Pop over to academy.bacellarexperiment.com. And Mr. State, I look forward to hearing more about your adventures uh, over the coming weeks. I know there's a lot happening. A lot of stuff you can't share. Some big news next week. Fingers big crossed. News. Some very big news next week. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, stay tuned, folks. This is going to be a very interesting year. So it's a goodbye from Mark 1. <laughs> and a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.